Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. Uh-huh. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Aha! Live from the soapily beautific hideaway somewhere in the Los Angeles area. Following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on OutlawRadioLive.com. Heard everywhere in the world where people listen to OutlawRadioLive.com. Howard Lapidus, manager to the star, is off in Oklahoma. Yes, he's here in a Surrey with a fridge on top. <laughs> High as an elephant's eye. Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, is here. I am the legendary Burl Bear, who, as my age advances, I'm becoming the granddaddy of true crime in America. I didn't do that on purpose. Well, actually, it was my plan to start late in life, and that way I could be the grand old master of my domain. Catherine Ramsland was one of our first guests when we started this program over 10 years ago. And she doesn't look at least a decade older than she did then. I don't know how you do it, Catherine. I hope she hasn't hung up already. No, we <laughs> Well, you can turn the music down a little bit now. Thank you, uh, Matt Allen, our brilliant producer. We can't hear you, Mark. More the blessing. Uh, Catherine, it's great to have you back on the show. Burl, I have to figure out which one. They're inviting me. Mike, on. You have to figure out what microphone he's on? Yeah. That could take you at least 55 minutes. We'll just keep going. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's uh, Mark Boyer, our fact checker, who knows more about your life, Catherine, than you do. That's, he only knows the, the story that I put out there, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, uh, we've we never talked about, we'll talk about all the stuff you want to talk about, but we never talked about, I don't think, the, the how you... Uh, had this affair with uh, Anne Rice. I don't mean uh, romantically. I mean uh, literarily. Is that the word? Literarily, yeah. For <laughs> seven years, yep. <laughs> How did you get hooked up in that? Uh, I just, I wanted to write her biography, so I called her. And she was up for that? Apparently. Apparently. <laughs> you're the only one who asked? I guess so. My second, that was my second book, and, and um, yeah. See, the reason I'm asking is, of course, everything's all about me, is that when I wrote uh, uh, the book on uh, Leslie Charteris and the Saint, he said that uh, over the years he'd had many, many people want to do a book, and uh, he didn't want to help out at all. Uh, <laughs> so he doesn't like to do interviews, and, but if I got really stuck on, on one or two things, he, he straightened me out. Uh, so I didn't know if you had yeah. to jump through well, any hoops. No, she was helpful, and so was Dean Koontz. I mean, I, I, I did both of them. Wow. Um, they, they both are very cooperative. No one's contacted me to do the definitive Pearl Bear book. That would take about five minutes. <laughs> about five minutes. The closest to it is, is I wrote a private eye novel where I'm the hero, and that's because I knew no one else was ever going to do that. <laughs> and so I did it. Now it's too late. <laughs> no one else can claim that they did that. So are you still out recording tombstones? Um, I don't do... I mean, I went out to some cemeteries in London, but I, I, don't, I didn't record tombstones. I wrote about people who did that. Oh. Did you, you played something for us on the air one time. You know, it was like, you know, your mother knit socks in hell or something like that. 
think that was my evil twin. Oh, that was your evil twin did that one. <laughs> okay, well, it was something along that line, as I remember. Uh, you show up in Psychology Today. You did a brilliant interview with me, which I thought was really wonderful. My my therapist was very impressed. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Uh, I had a therapist once that was uh, uh, married to a guy who worked for Nintendo. And I uh, thought, they must have fantastic arguments. He says, stop playing games. And she says, let's, let's take this relationship to the next level. True story. Got it. You got it. Get it. Got it. Good. I got it. Okay. Hi. Now let's talk about. Uh, we'll be all done with the show in about thirty seconds. Uh, <laughs> I'm teasing you, Catherine. Uh, no. BTK. The crickets are out there responding to my joke. That's enough. Thank you. Uh, BTK. Was he as hard to deal with as uh, Anne Rice? Well, they they're very different. I mean. Uh, he wanted to write. He, he wanted someone to help him write his dark autobiography, or dark journey, as he called it. Hmm. And that's a, it's a very different process than writing someone's biography, because an autobiography is just his perspective and his voice, whereas a biography, you interview a lot of people who know the person, and you piece together all these various narratives. Hmm. So that's... That's just a very different process. But I will say, when I've talked to other people who have interviewed serial killers at length for their own books, I, I think that he was a lot easier to deal with than some of these others. He wasn't vulgar. He wasn't disrespectful to me at any time. Hmm. Um, and not demanding, not, not any of the things I've seen in other people's experience. So, well, then again, you were you're not a young boy. No offense. Maybe well, he wasn't interested in young boys. Wasn't he? I thought he was. I always get those serial killers confused. But that doesn't matter. I mean, I mean that that the point is when other people have talked to some of these other killers, you know, those people cross the the killers, the offenders often cross the line. We'll call them at all hours, run up bills, mm -hmm. demand to have money. Speak and you know, ask for naked pictures. Like <laughs> yeah. and, and I, I never had that experience with Dennis Rader. And that's just Burl Bear. That's yeah, just me. I'm the one who calls up in the middle of the night and says, "What are you wearing?" The thing is, I'm calling him. And it's hard to get through. <laughs> yeah, no, he didn't have anything for kids for little boys. Oh, I thought he did. Yeah. What, 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 what did he have a thing for? Finding. Torturing and killing. Yeah, bind them, torture them, killing. He didn't really actually torture people either, aside from psychological. Um, but he definitely wanted to bind them. That was the big thing for him was to always to tie them up with something because for him, his paraphilia was about ropes. Oh, he should have been a sailor. He, he was an airman. I mean, he was in the Air Force. Oh, close. He learned to tie knots and stuff there. And he was in the Boy Scouts. Oh, there you go. Yep. That's, see, that's the breeding ground of these people. <laughs> well, I think it started before any of that, actually. Well, he could have had a thing with ropes. I mean, so there are people on the receiving end of that sort of thing like that. Uh, also him. He would bind himself, too. Oh. A lot. He would hang himself. He'd bind himself. He'd Probably ate a lot that. of cheese, too. This is very what? binding. It's very binding. Very binding. <laughs> oh. 
That's, that's another one that the crickets come up <laughs> after I say it. Um, our, our serial killers... Well, we'll wait for the crickets. Okay, enough of the crickets, thank you. Are the are serial killers born or are they made? That's, that's the one question I really hate to answer because, first of all, serial killer is not a character type. It's a description of, of an act to two murders, two different occasions. And not, we have thousands of serial killers, and it, it's not a type. And secondly, it's not possible to say how much of that has to do with their genetics and physiology versus what they were exposed to. It's a mix of both, so there's no, yeah. there's no formula for that. There was a, a case in Tacoma that I worked on where you had two uh, psychopaths. One was uh, born that way. But genetic, whatever. The other became that way from repeated head injuries and abuse. Well, that's not psychopathy. That psychopathy is, in fact, visible in the brain. The brain structures are different in psychopaths. A person who's had head injuries may show antisocial behavior as a result of that. That doesn't make them a psychopath necessarily. Mm. So they could have psychopathic indicators or elements right. of a similar, similar. Right, but it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be the environment that would make the person. Right, gotcha. A psychopath, because a psychopath is diagnosable. Right, but like you mentioned, the areas of the brain uh, process different areas process differently. Right. Was it Dr. Robert Harris said they they know the words but they can't hear the music? Yeah, he said that, but Kent Keel is the one who's been, done the most work on doing the brain scans, mm -hmm. the functional magnetic resonance imaging right. on psychopaths versus other offenders versus normal people to show that psychopaths actually do have different types of brains and brain connections and disconnections. We well, you know it was, it was proposed after a Canadian study that uh, showed something like 83% of Canadians uh, who were incarcerated had FASD. And so when it proposed, you know, like, doing tests, like doing brain scans on people when they're, with their sentence, whatever, to find out what's going on in their brain, to know if, what you're dealing with? Well, it's not just the brain scan. First, you do clinical interviews, extensive interviews. You look at their records and then also add the brain scan in. So it's not just about the brain scan. So you have a variety of, of things that yeah. congeal. Congel? Yeah, so you would look at their developmental the facts about their their lives. Um, so if they had, I think you're talking about fetal alcohol syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. What is it you're talking about? Uh, either, either. Uh, if someone had fetal well, alcohol syndrome. So you look, at the, you look at the developmental facts of their life, you would do the brain scans, you do a physical, um, you look at any kind of family history of mental illness or genetic disorders, so it's a pretty extensive process. That's why they didn't want to do it. <laughs> right. Cost the, the, the objection at all on a different topic is we didn't need DNA evidence to convict him. We don't need to see it now. When people are trying to have their case you know, reevaluated with DNA to see whether, yeah. and, and prosecutors go, we, don't, we didn't need it to convict him, so we don't need to look at it now. In what, in BTK's case? In, in, in a variety of cases, yeah. I was reading an article on how, what percentage or whatever of, of prosecutors fight having... Uh, well, that, that's a pretty stupid comment then because lots of these, you know, so-called convictions have been overturned on quite a number of errors, some of which is prosecute, 
prosecutorial misconduct. Mm-hmm. Some of it's junk science, some of it's faulty eyewitness testimony, some of it's false confessions or failure to corroborate confessions. So that's kind of a dumb statement because that conviction can be overturned with DNA. So Yeah, but so if they won't allow it in, if they fight having it to come in. Well, that's if, if they care about the ju- justice system. Well, it's about I hate to break truth, it to you, but a lot of them don't. I know they don't, but I'm saying for them to, to make that statement just shows that they really don't care yeah, about the justice system. I agree with you 100%. That's the upsetting thing. I grew up believing that like most people do, that the job of the prosecutor is to find people guilty. And uh, it's supposed to be to seek justice, to make sure you don't send the wrong people off to the slammer as well. Right. <clears throat> and, you know, not you know I, any prosecutor I've had on the show, I've always asked them, have you ever been asked to prosecute someone and pressured to do so by your superiors that you firmly believed was not guilty? And they all said Yes. And one of them, as a prosecutor, assistant prosecutor in, in New York, uh, on on this show, said that was the reason she quit. Well, that's good. Yeah, I was proud of her. So I got someone in there who would. <laughs> and some a, wouldn't because yeah. they don't care. Yeah, it's a strange one. When you did your very first book on true crime, piercing the darkness, undercover with vampires. Okay, that wasn't my first book. That wasn't. <laughs> It says that says that your cheat sheet right here. All right, it's just I don't a list know where of books, you got girl. your cheat sheet, but that definitely wasn't my first book. It says my very right first book was on a philosopher named Kierkegaard. That was my very oh, of first course. Book. Oh. oh, we know him. And then Anne Rice's biography was my second book, and then I did. Uh, well, well, it another says the one first on, the first on book on true cr- first book on true crime. It says here. So it was, well, that's not really on true crime. There's only one chapter that has something to do with crime. The rest is about the vampire subculture, which is not about true crime. I know. I know. So I don't know who put that on. It's, it's <laughs> you, hey, fact checker Mark Boyer, where'd you get this? I just printed out a list of her books for reference. No, the, I printed you have Catherine Ramsland, October 6, 2018, all about her education, her career, her uh, hairstyle. Uh, right. All that stuff. So, you guys, where'd you get that from? Her website? Uh, no, I don't have a website. Oh, it must have been from Wikipedia or something. Which is awful. Yeah, but that's okay. Tell us about the How one that wasn't. How many books does it say? How many books does it say I've published? Uh, 60. 50? Uh, 60. Okay, it's 65. 65. Well, I see you're 65, or we'll go for 70. Okay, so. I am going for 70, aren't I? I bet, you, bet you are. <laughs> Uh, Ramblin's book that was not her first on true crime, Piercing the Darkness, Undercover with Vampires in America Today. How do the vampires in America today overcome uh, being physically ill when they have blood? Well, they're guzzling it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's more of an aperitif? <laughs> Basically, they're tasting it um, or taking small bits of it or... Mixing it with something. They're not um, chug-a-lugging it like they're at a, you know, frat party or anything. They're not chugging it. Nope, that's not what they're doing. Right. But there is that. I, I read this years ago when the Earth was young and dinosaurs were, were roving the Earth when this book came out. Because uh, I was kind of interested in that. It was a passing phase. But, uh, I mean, I wasn't interested in the blood. I just wanted to know about the subculture. Right. And, uh, well, a lot of them don't drink blood. They call themselves energy vampires. Oh, well, that's understandable. That's like breatharians. Who go into the supermarket and exactly. breathe all the nutrients out of the food. Right. And some of them are only role-playing. Mm-hmm. But those who actually take blood 
usually are just, you know, taking small bits or it's more it's more of a symbolic. They're not living off of it like a real vampire would. Yeah, I saw that movie on Netflix about the babysitter who was a vampire. And she was really into it. <laughs> I don't know which one that is. It has, I think it's called The Vampire Babysitter. <laughs> I didn't see it. Yeah. Uh, it's not one of those lifetime movies. You know. There are very few vampire movies that are worth seeing. Says, uh, he's very a, few, I agree. Very few. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, near Dark would be near the top. That's a good one. Yeah, what, what about uh, Daywalkers? What's a Blade? How about the Blade uh, 3? No. No, no. Blade 3, Yankees, nothing. No, I, don't think, I don't like any of the Blade movies. <clears throat> the, um, there was a movie with William Dafoe. Where they were uh, oh, documented, they were they were showing how they made Nosferatu. Yes, and they hired a real vampire. They hired a real <laughs> vampire. <laughs> yes, that was really cool. Right. Okay. I like that, that one. He actually looked like the guy, uh, yeah. Shrek. Yeah. Uh, the, Max the, Shrek. The, Max Shrek. That's right. Oh right, right, yeah. Max, <laughs> you're on. Time for your close-up. Yeah, Nosferatu is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. He looks the real. One. He comes crawling out of the hole. <laughs> where the hole did he come from? Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I always like that one. And the original Cabinet of Caligari, although there's not a vampire in it, I always like the sets. You know, the... Uh, yeah, the, uh, all those old movies seem to get it better than the ones they're making today. Yeah, some of them are, are top heavy. Uh, there was, uh, I watched the uh, uh, documentary about uh, Leonard Nimoy and uh, Mr. Spock. Yeah. And how much he disliked the first Star Trek movie because it's, it was all tech, you know, uh, technological. Te- technological. They all became technocrats. <laughs> uh, well, apparently they've sort of ruined the haunting of Hill House. Oh, I haven't oh, seen yeah. the third and latest version. I, here I've go. only the, seen the trailer and enough to say I am not watching this. No, that Vincent Price uh, did it right. Yes, because it's all about the sensual atmosphere of it, much more so than about. You know, crass right. horror effects, or you know, no torture. What is the, what, the what's the movie that's about that? Was it the House in the Woods? What the last house on the left? No, no, no. House in the Woods. It's like the haunted house movie, except the whole thing is is about exactly what she's talking about. It's all engineered and done like special effects. Oh right, right. No, I don't know the name of it, but I remember seeing it. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was kind of. I, I like self-referential. Yeah. <laughs> My ex always hated self-referential in-joke stuff, which is why she's in an institution now instead of married to me. <laughs> well, and, and how much? Never mind. I was going to ask how much you had to play. How much did I have to pay to get into the institution? Yes. No, exactly. <laughs> I, I got a real ringer for you here. She doesn't like self-referential comedy. Oh, lock her up. Lock her up. So why? Why did you? What's your fascination with uh, vampires? It was 20 years ago. Well, she was a lot younger 20 years <laughs> you were ago. You a lot younger. Yeah. I, had, I, I was going into it because people were calling. This woman disappeared in New York who was writing stories about the vampire subculture. Her name is Susan Walsh. People started calling me because of my the books I wrote with Anne Rice, The Vampire Companion, and those. They started calling me as if I knew where she was. And knew Oh, sure, I've got people. her number right here. And then, and then, uh, so I was telling my agent this, and he said, "I bet you could get into that subculture." That was actually my first uh, type of book where I did immersion journalism, where I, I actually went and did all these things for a couple of years, you know, getting to know the people and doing what they were doing. Um, so that's it was sort of a trilogy. It was uh, Pearson of Darkness, 
Ghost, Investigating the Other Side, and Cemetery Stories. Those three were, were my immersion journalism books. That's an interesting. You and uh, Susie Spencer should get together. She did Secret Sex Lives. Uh, what, a <laughs> I was year thinking on, about that all. Yeah, it, boy, that, are you familiar with that book? I can highly recommend it. <laughs> really, honestly. I, I, I sort of know it, but I, not, not it's, it is worth reading because it's fascinating. It's the same sort of thing. But it's, it's, it's really her trying to be a journalist when it's really about her. And the final chapter when she winds up uh, on the Lazy Susan at the, uh, <laughs> at the convention, uh, the anxiety she goes through writing it, where she gets up from the typewriter and then back down and, oh, my God, what if my mother going to say if she reads this chapter? It's absolutely nail-biting. It's just great. It's a great book. Oh, I didn't have that problem. My mother likes what I do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're, you're, well, that's, that's, that's good. But then again, you weren't on the Lazy Susan, so... Oh, yeah? You think that? No, I, well, I don't know. God only knows with you, but you have to... I went to the penthouse suite, the Nutcracker suite, yeah. for the S&M Vampire Night. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so I've, I didn't uh, worry about my mother reading things, though. So. It takes a lot of practice to know how to crack that whip like Devo and not hurt anybody for real. I mean, like, not hurt him bad. They have classes well, here on how to use the cat of nine tails. It depends on if you're a dom. If you're a dom, what do you care? Right? Well, no, you do care. If you're a good dog. Only if you want to keep going with that person. If you don't, if you don't, then you don't care. Yeah, they got to be real careful, though. They have to watch out for safety at all times. I think here in California, in order to be a dominatrix, you have to be a sub first. Well, some people think take that approach. Not everybody does. Yeah, in Florida, which is where they had the dominatrix convention, uh, it's illegal. <laughs> I don't know why they had it in Florida, but. Uh, uh, yeah, it seems weird. I'm, I'm kind of concerned you know so much about this. I know a great deal about this because a close personal friend of mine is dominatrix, and she would call me in for role play for clients that needed a cast of characters. So you'd come in as a Kaiser? Or no, a, I, I would come in as a, a school counselor. And uh, <laughs> I got to use one of my favorite lines I always wanted to use in an appropriate place. You'll appreciate this, Catherine. This client comes in, and I'm supposed to be the, uh, the counselor. Tell him all the things he's done wrong and all the things the teacher's complained about. And therefore, he's going to have to be punished. And as she straps on her weapon of choice, I look him in the eye and I said, and this is going on your permanent record. <laughs> <laughs> they always use that line I went on us when we were kids. They say, this will go on your permanent record. So as she's writing him around the block, I said, this is going on your permanent record. But that's another story. <laughs> And a pleasant one at that. Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of the question, I, I don't. In fact, I just got called by somebody who's writing for the New York Times on the vampire subculture today in comparison to what it was back in the 90s. And he actually found some of the people that were in my book. Um, but it is so different because during the 90s, it was, a, it was big. It was a, mm -hmm. hundreds of people participated. We had one party in New York that was 800 people. Wow. That was huge. It's nothing like it was back in the 90s. Well, that's the thing about it. It's like hula hoops and musical spoons. You know, it's a kind of rise that quest, much like my my career. <laughs> you know, it's just it's a, <laughs> this short lifespan, and then you just try to keep resurrecting it every every so often. Uh, I can understand that. Uh, uh, there's a group here that I've... Uh, you're a journalist. You still have to join up, you know, and you can't put people's names, real names, and all that stuff. 
least here you can. Uh, but I found it fascinating, the, uh, the therapeutic value to some people is really rather astonishing. At least I found it so. What do you mean, therapeutic? Oh, they were, this uh, one woman who was a journalist came in, and, and she wanted to be, shall we say, whipped. Oh. Right? right? And flogged or whatever. And it was like with each, out came something else from her life. It was almost like a catharsis sort of thing. It was very liberating. Then there's some things I, I didn't quite understand because I didn't get a chance to ask the people. There was one adorable little Hindustani girl who got wrapped up in a giant sheet of saran wrap. Well, that's dangerous. BTK yeah. used to do that. Yeah. and He'd wrap uh, himself up and bury himself. Yeah. Well, there's that book by, uh, what's her name? <laughs> Whose mother is also an author. Uh, God, my mind just went blank. And that's the one on various... Uh, uh, I can see the cover in my mind. It's a pair of high-heeled boots on the cover. Uh, it's always kind of people who died doing their sexual fetish. I don't know that book. Uh, so I need to know that book. You do need to know that book. <laughs> What's the name of it? Oh, uh, Dead Sex People. I said, no, I'll think of it. I'll, and, the, and the author was, was on the show, too. How long ago did it come out? Uh, We've got to go back about five years, maybe. I'll, I'll do if we have a break. I'll look it up. In any event, it's like person who wrapped themselves up and, uh, but they didn't give themselves enough way for their skin to breathe. Kind of like the Goldfinger oh, people. That's autoerotic. Yeah, that's Asphyxiate. called an autoerotic accident or yeah. incident. You know, there um, are. Go ahead. There, there's quite a few books on that stuff. Uh, then the the person who uh, likes to go into uh, outhouses. You know, down below. In the poop. I don't understand that one. Yeah, that's a mild one. That's about. <laughs> what's your favorite intense one? <laughs> I don't mean your person. You know, I mean personally what you enjoy. But I mean, what's the strangest? Or uh, I think the guy who would would sort of um, he put chains around his car, the wheel, the wheels of his car, mm. wheelbase, and, and so that, so it would make he'd fix the steering wheel so the car would drive in a circle, and then it would drag him car would drag him, and, and, and he was all up in, in chains. And one day, the car got tangled up and ran over him. Ooh. <laughs> Did he like that? Did he try to make it happen again, or did he no, kill he him? he died. Oh, he died. It was, it, when they went to notify his wife, she said, well, he said he was going fishing. Yeah. Well, that's like that. Oh, God, I always felt so sorry for this guy's wife and kids. They thought he was off at a medical convention, and he was in Cleelum, Washington, getting screwed by a horse. Oh. <laughs> and he died, of course. Yeah. He died from the horse, of course, of course. Uh, and someone had to go tell his wife, your husband's dead. What happened? It was an accident at the medical convention. No, he had sex with a horse. Yeah. And that's got to be embarrassing. I mean, to not know that about your husband, that, you know, I mean, sure you watched a lot of Fury reruns, but you didn't expect that. We had one here where the guy uh, was using a vacuum cleaner and mm. somehow the... Electrocuted him. Ow! And when the coroner told his girlfriend, she said, "I, I don't understand. I swallow. Why oh did he need a vacuum cleaner? <laughs> Why did he need a vacuum cleaner?" <laughs> oh God, that's a great quote. I don't understand. <laughs> they had him put that on a plaque somewhere. <laughs> you may save your boyfriend's life. <laughs> that's brilliant. Uh, 
What was the other? No, no, was about, my mind's gone elsewhere. <laughs> uh, what was the other? There's a lot of interesting ones like that. Oh, I know. 400 men a year, not the same 400, mind you, die from having sex with their farm machinery. <laughs> this is true. Find that. This is true. There was a big article in the same magazine that had the article about the guys who drill holes in their head. Right. What do you call it, a tapadary or something? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, 400 guys. And the thing is, is but it, it's this whole romantic, sexual, erotic attachment to their back hose. These are my back hose. And, uh, uh, you know, when they write a Dear John letter, it's a John Deere letter. It's very strange. Well, we had, we had one where the guy was found dead with a, a couch, a leg of a couch on his head. And that turned out that, that was his fetish that he used to, that he, he could only get aroused if he had something heavy on his head. Maybe he had and a very this large one was a wife. a little too heavy, and it crushed his skull. Oh, my God. Couldn't he just rent a large woman? And, no, and so we, we, knew, we knew it was autoerotic because he was in therapy for it. it didn't, obviously, the therapy didn't work. Well, did he want to be cured? He just wanted to learn how to enjoy it without feeling no, guilty. No, he wanted to be cured because he wanted to get married. Ah. Boys say, honey, will you please sit on my head? <laughs> Not my face, just my head. <laughs> yeah, sexuality is a very bizarre thing. Yeah, sure. well, as it, Kinsey said, there is no normal. There's just what you like. Yeah, pr pretty much, yep. Yeah, well, that made me feel a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> After I heard that, I'm free at last, free at last. Yeah, it's an interesting subject. One could spend their entire life studying the varieties of sexual experience. I imagine some people do that professionally. Yeah, I actually wrote a book where I talk a lot about them. It's uh, called The Psychology of Death Investigation, and there's whole part of a whole chapter devoted to autoerotic fatalities because you need to be able to distinguish them from suicides. Yes, that's true. How do you determine the difference? They don't leave a note and they're smiling? Well, often they have, you know, contraptions or they have pornography. It's harder to do with women because they don't generally have pornography, but usually they're wearing something you know, that suggests this or they have mirrors set up because they want to watch themselves. Right. And, you know, so they, you can't always tell because some have been called suicides mistakenly. Mm. But, um, yeah, you have, to, you have to do some work to do that. I can remember I was called in to to do the thing with the dominatrix to be the cast member and all i had to do was go to a tea party that was fine uh and it was the the gentleman's thing was uh and he was a nice guy too uh put on an outfit like hazel you know hazel the maid right and uh, serve tea yep that was fine and i as i said to uh, our host i said you know it's so hard to get good help these days you know you <laughs> How jealous I was that she had such a, a good mate. And then my daughter had a great one. Uh, her house needed cleaning, and she hired a sissy maid. Very successful gentleman pulls up in a Mercedes and says, here's the deal. I'm going to dress up in, in female attire, and I'm going to clean your house spotless, except I won't touch anything that, that's your boyfriend's. Your stuff, yes, the kitchen, you know, but I'm not going to clean you know, anything his. And he did a fantastic job, didn't charge her anything. And Where is this guy? I, I, you want to, I know. I was looking, if you go and look for sissy maids near you, just ask Siri. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Siri, 
Please find Sissy, Sissy Mays. Sissy Mays. But here's what he wanted to do. And he said to my daughter, he says, you could do me a big favor. He says, I'll tell you what I really like to do. He says, I'd like you to have a, a luncheon for your female friends. And I will, you know, be the, like the wait, waitress, whatever, you know, bring the food out, take, you know, uh, do all the stuff that a, a wait, waitress would do. And, uh, and then would go stand in the corner with uh, his face to the wall until they needed him for something. How fun. And that's, that's what he enjoyed. There's a whole bunch on Pinterest. There is? Yeah. Oh, see, Mark, Mark found yeah. it right away. Pinterest. How many of them are in Pennsylvania? How many of Pennsylvania? Say, Sissy Mays, Pennsylvania. <laughs> it's a great deal because they did that. I mean, they make your house shine like the top of the Chrysler I know, building. I want one. I, and they I don't charge you anything. I had somebody volunteer to be my slave. Yeah. Who could blame them? Yeah, but I didn't want to cook and, you know, stuff for him, so. Oh, you had to cook for him, too? I well, found a training website. Okay, what did you find? You found the Sissy Mays website? website. Sissy made, he found a Sissy made training website. God, that's great. That's great. Does it have how to find one in Pennsylvania? No. No? No. Just type in Sissy Maids Pennsylvania. I did. Nothing came up? Well, nothing specific about Pennsylvania. Well, I, I definitely need one of these guys. Well, we'll put it on APB. <laughs> Catherine Ramsden wants a Sissy made. Pack it on. <laughs> The tail's at 55. I want, I want when it comes in a limo. and. <laughs> right. You want you want that. Well, as yes, you know, from the, the, most of the, the guys who are into uh, being dominant like this or tied up or strung up or high strung uh, are usually under a lot of pressure. They have to make a lot of decisions. They always have right. to be in control of everything. And so, I mean, this my dominatrix friend was making, what, $325 for like 45 minutes or an hour. And uh, uh, I was fascinated because... The sub is always in charge. Right. They're, they're the ones who create the scenario yeah. and everything. So they're still in charge. They're still making the decisions, but they're paying money to pretend they're not in charge. Right. And, and it depends on how good they are at forgetting that they're not in charge. Right. <clears throat> but, you know, I had one who, um, he came to the dom and asked her to truss him up like a turkey, put him in the oven. In the oven. And and then go do her shopping and stuff. Not, don't turn it on, but no, he just put me in the oven. In there, and she had to come back and baste him every now and then. Of course, and that's what that's what he wanted. She was a master baster. I guess so. <laughs> I, uh, like, I thought you could have a lot I of fun with a turkey a baster. And sitting in a crib was weird. Oh, the infantilism. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There is. In fact, we, we did that with my son. I like son. the ones that are more interesting, like the guy who who decided to put on two diving suits and he anchored himself down because he had to be underwater to mm. get aroused. But then one day, yep. he, the anchors didn't let go and he drowned. And boy, did they have some time figuring out what in the world is <laughs> what, what the hell happened here? <laughs> Dad, I see now that there's some things that have just never occurred to me to do. And now that now I'm finding, have, right? and now that I'm finding out about them, it's, over the, it's like Jim Jones when Jim Jones went to see uh, Father Divine, who is that uh, fake black messiah in New York. Yeah. And Jim Jones went to see him for some fatherly advice, <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, "I got two two problems I want you to help me with." He said one is I don't have enough money, not, not enough money coming in, and Father Divine said, "Ask, and you shall receive. Ask." And you shall receive. Oh, oh, I get it. I can ask for the money. And the other thing is, uh, Father, is that 
Uh, a lot of members of my congregation, both men and women, want to have sex with me. What do I do? And Father Divine, who was known for having a, shall we say, a, a large amount of what he called his, his little rosebuds, <laughs> said, you must serve the needs of your congregation. And he said, reportedly, thank you, Father. You've opened a whole new world to me. <laughs> yeah, it's a strange world. Really. Well, that just makes people so entertaining. I think women are more diverse. Well, now that you're telling about these guys who want to dress up like, uh, you know, <laughs> what's it called, sea hunt, <laughs> be underwater. Yep. I wonder where that, do they know where that derives from, the water fetish? Well, that's, it, it is an entire website devoted to water fetishes, and some people have to strangle somebody underwater. That's, that's oh. a whole, there's an entire website just for that. I think it's called Water Babies or something <laughs> of that nature. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so. water, it has a very erotic property, so some people, there, there's a, quite a diversity of arousal mechanisms associated with water. Uh, one evening, many years ago, of course, I was with two women who both had been married to the same man. <laughs> and they were reminiscing about their ex-husband. They weren't married to him at the same time. And this gentleman, just prior to his climax, wanted ice sh shoved up his tochas, right? Now, that's pretty common. Yeah, and I said, cubes or the entire tray? <laughs> 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 you had to stop and think about that one for a minute. The visuals were great. <laughs> yeah, that's... And the other one is uh, Kirby Anthony, who is a uh, murdering rapist uh, in, in my brilliant book, uh, Murder in the Family. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I have to take notes. Yes, see, every time I plug one of my own books uh, when I'm interviewing somebody else... 240. Mark uh, keeps track. <laughs> oh, okay. But his girlfriend said that when they were having sex, he wanted her to grab his testicles and squeeze them absolutely as hard as she could. Inflict as much pain as possible. Yeah. Now, that I've hadn't that crossed one. my mind either. I've heard of that one several times. Yeah. I'm not into pain. I just know why. Ever since I went to a dentist, I, you know. <laughs> but some people, uh, you know, it just all depends on what you like. Yep. There's a thing with the food, too, you know, like being covered in chocolate sauce. Yeah, or Jello, or Jello, yeah. macaroni and cheese, the award-winning chili recipe from last year. <laughs> that could that could be entertaining, unless unless they do Cambodian food, which I'm not into at all. And so I, I'd, I'd pass on that date. Keep that in mind. Yeah. Uh, now, see, now Mark has an aversion to Chinese food. He can't go into a Chinese restaurant. Yes, I had a very unfortunate uh, experience with nothing to do with Chinese food. I was ill at the time, and I uh, spewed all over the table. Oh. With, and people uh, couldn't tell the difference. He kept right on eating. <laughs> I was um, uh, in a crowd of all of my peers as a young person, uh, professional peers, and the embarrassment has scarred me. I can't yeah, walk that. into a Chinese restaurant without feeling like I'm going to puke. Isn't that something? I bet a therapist could help you with that for several thousand dollars. Uh, I'll, I'll just not. I'll just skip therapy. Will help. But. I'll yeah. just skip the Chinese food and take the knock against my Jewishness. Yeah, yeah. Say yeah, it. Well, you know about the guy who goes into the Chinese restaurant on Yom Kippur during the day. The rabbi happens to walk by and he sees the guy in there ordering the barbecued pork, and this and the other. 
And so like, the rabbi can't take it anymore. And he goes to the guy and says, what are you doing? You know, he says, wait, 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 rabbi. He says, did you see me with the menu? Did you see me order it? Yeah. You see them take the order to the kitchen. You see them bring it out. Give it to me. Yes. Well, what's your complaint? It was all prepared under rabbinical supervision. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Bye. I got some great rabbi jokes if you ever want to hear them. Um, <laughs> That's my no, hobby. I collect them. Matter of fact, this may come under the same category of strange death-related fetishes. There was this guy who actually despised his rabbi, and he really wanted to tell to tell the rabbi so. So he gets up his, his, uh, his nerve, and he goes to the synagogue and demands to see the rabbi. And the assistant says... I'm awfully sorry. You can't see the rabbi. He died this morning. What? Because, yes, he was standing there at the bima, and he uh, had a heart attack, and he keeled over, and, and he died. Oh, no. So the guy goes, I mean, he's just distraught, and he walks out, and he walks around town for about an hour or so, and comes back and demands to see the rabbi. He says, I had told you already that the rabbi died. Oh, leaves for another hour. Comes back three more times. I'm shortening down the joke, of course. And again, demands to see the rabbi. He says, why do you keep demanding to see the rabbi when you know the rabbi's dead? He says, I know he's dead, but I just love hearing you tell me. Uh, Pearl? Crickets? Crickets? Pearl, Pearl. Yeah. Save, save the jokes. Save the jokes? All right. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, you've written a number of, of, the, uh, of these lovely books on uh, very bad people. Well, there's um, the crickets for slow to get the joke. Now they're, they're there. <laughs> uh, do you find the research, uh, do you enjoy the research portion of the, writing these books? I enjoy the research portion of every book much more than the writing. Yes, isn't that true? Fascinating. Yeah, because I, I like exploring things I don't know and learning new things and, and just following one research thread into another, into another and then having to organize it all and really, you know, get it to the point where it's something I can express to people, and that's harder to do. So I love the research. But, it's, but in terms of it being so dark, the kind of people that I write a lot about, it doesn't bother me as much as I think it does a lot of people because, for me, it's more clinical because I, I, mean, I teach courses in forensic psychology and criminology. So for me, there's that that type of curiosity has a buffer to it that I think isn't there for a lot of people who are writing true crime. I love the research also. That's, uh, it was always my, my favorite thing. And then I got in a situation when I was... So wait, does that count as you, as you plug in one of your books? Uh, not yet. He hasn't not mentioned yet. the title. It's going to in a moment. You know, he hasn't mentioned, uh, you know, the betrayal in blue. No, I'm, I'm, no, but I will, ma- I will mention uh, Taste for Murder, which I wrote with Frank Gerardo Jr. I came down here. Now, up in the Northwest, I was pretty well connected. I could talk to this prosecutor, this attorney, whatever, and get the stuff I needed. But I came down here to L.A. I didn't have those connections. And he was going to do this great book that uh, Frank Gerardo came up with. And it turns out that Frank knows everybody. He has access. He has all those connections. And I'm saying, you know, I'm becoming an Alta Cocker. You know what an Alta Cocker is? Yeah. An, an, old, an older gentleman. And uh, Frank could do the heavy lifting. As much as I love the research, he had the access. Yeah. And uh, don't let him do that. So here's the thing about... Uh, uh, I did a lot of research for a book I ghost wrote, so I shouldn't give away who, who I wrote it for because there are names on the book. 
but uh, had a lot to do with uh, uh, treating uh, addiction and other things like that. So I got all the scholarly stuff, a lot from other countries, and I found out a fascinating thing about the United States of America. In the United States of America, we, meaning our policies, etc., will almost always fall on the side of what we know doesn't work. Not because we want it not to work, but because it's popular. Because we pre-sold it. So it's well, a popular and also profitable. Yes, popular and profitable with the various uh, stakeholders and various, uh, you know, uh, moral panics, etc. Yep. But uh, uh, just, I thought it was really fascinating to have two different approaches. One you know will work because it's been shown to work. And one that has shown never to work. And that's the one you keep going with. Then, yeah, there's an odd stubbornness in the idea of going with the crowd or going with what the news is covering or you know something like that. Weird. In, in your in your um, uh, educational side to your your persona, <laughs> have you run into uh, a reticence to adopt you know some of the standard CSI procedures or uh, well, profiling? You mean- among cops or among yeah, law among law enforcement. <laughs> uh, law enforcement tends to be resistant to psychology as a whole, but they do they don't like um, anyone t- if they're if like their experience they don't like to learn about new things. They don't want to change, and and that's often the personality that is that is attracted to law enforcement because they they like things to be predictable and more or less black and white, good and evil. Um, they they don't like change. They, they, they think it's always been this way, this is the best way to do it, which isn't a very good way of thinking, but it's hard to get them to change. But uh, the younger ones who are, you know, fresh out of the academy or, you know, really want to improve themselves, they, they really want to learn the new stuff. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on the kind of person you're talking to. Well, also, the other thing is we had uh, Brent Turvey on a few times, and he always brings this up, is the common problem of police deciding who did it before they have the evidence. Well, that's tunnel vision and confirmation bias, and that's partly the pressure to get this done and get it done quickly. And also this idea that gut instinct is, is always right, which is not correct. And, and they think they've seen this before, so they know exactly what it is. It's a very lazy mindset, um, and it is endemic among the older police officers who are, who are used to doing the same thing and just think they've seen it all. Well, that's an any other situation such as the one in Canada with the uh, pig farmer guy murdering the women. Yeah. The, the cops not only knew about it, they knew who was doing it. And it didn't you know, do anything. Didn't do and they anything. were warned by, you know, um, with Kim Rossmo, mm-hmm. and they were they, he ba- they basically told him to get lost. He yeah. was the one who who got the geographical profiling programs going, and they just they told him to stop bugging them about it. Yeah, they said the reasons they didn't want to pursue it was one, they couldn't afford it; two, it was more work than they wanted to do; right. and three, they weren't trained in how to do it. And it was prostitutes and drug addicts and a pig farmer. Yeah. That was always the problem. So where Spokane was smart with dealing with, with uh, Robert Lee Yates is they knew that, okay, this guy is murdering what's called women of high-risk lifestyles. They've avoided calling them prostitutes and drug addicts, uh, which is nice nice of them. And they went out and, to, I mean, because prostitutes and drug addicts uh, and drug dealers, primarily more than addicts, the drug dealers aren't really excited to talk to the police. 
But the cops would go to them and say, we don't care what you're selling. We don't care who your customers are. This isn't about drugs. This is about murder. Someone is murdering your friends and your clients. Uh, and we want to catch that person and we need your help. And we're not going to arrest you. When we say we're not going to arrest you today isn't code words for we're coming back tomorrow to arrest you. It means King's X. We need your help. And that's how eventually they got him. Well, meanwhile, he's, he's killing people in Pierce County where they still have their old attitude was, no, <laughs> we're not going to go to the, the, you know, the, the pool of potential victims and get their help. The other one that really got me, now let's get your response on this, is in Spokane, they had where if you wanted to go to a homeless shelter and you were a woman, you had to be clean and sober. And if you weren't clean and sober, you couldn't go to the shelter. Well, this guy is bumping off uh, women who aren't clean and sober, who are prostitutes. Right. And they had to, there had to be a great deal of lobbying to get Spokane to open a, a shelter for women where they didn't have to be clean and sober to get off the street. The minute the guy was arrested and charged, they wanted to close it. Fortunately, and that's the part that pisses me off. Wow. Fortunately, Volunteers for America stepped in and kept the thing open. But the fact that they wanted to close it as soon as the guy was arrested. Mark Boyer has a comment or question. Yes, I do. Uh, Something uh, more current. Do we have a serial killer out there who likes redheads? Oh, the redheaded murders? That's Uh, that's actually from the 80s. Well, to him, that's contemporary. Well, because it was a recent post. Is that that the post you're looking at, the redhead murders? Yeah. Yeah, that's basically the 70s into the 80s and possibly a few in the 90s. They don't know who it is. They think it's probably a truck driver, you know, because it's kind of along that route. Um, but they're not really even sure how to link, whether they all can be linked together, and they probably can't all be linked together. The FBI looked at that at one point, I think, decided that five could be linked out of the, those victims. But that's, that's, a, that's probably the second one I know of that has had the redheaded... Um, preference. There was a, a, a long-haul or short-haul trucker who was uh, taking murdering women across the United States, and it was the United States Secret Service who uh, found out about it because they busted this guy with a whole bunch of counterfeit license plates. And oh, they, that's um, uh, DeBartolaven, right? Uh, anyway, the Are Secret you? Service agent who did the case lived across the street from me in Muckleteo, and I didn't know it. We got chatting one day, the day he was moving out. And I said, oh, do you know Lyle Workman? He worked with me on that overboard, blah, blah, blah. Mark, write that one down, Mark. And uh, he said, oh, I've got a file you'll be interested in. And he brought me the entire Secret Service file on that case hmm. with all the photographs and how they, they convicted him by matching the freckles on his arm. Wow. So are you writing a book on it? No, it's already been done. Someone did a book on it already. Oh, what's it called? I have no idea. I didn't read it. <laughs> I didn't have to read it, I guess, if I had the file. But it was a fascinating one because they, they went to the FBI or whatever and said, hey, there's a serial killer and we have all this information. And, of course, the Secret Service only does two things, and that's take a bullet for dignitaries uh, or uh, protect the uh, dignity of the United States currency. Well, they, they also went after um, uh, DeBart Laban, who was, another, he was a counterfeiter and also a rapist and serial killer. They, mm-hmm. It was the Secret Service who brought him down. Yeah, so they went, they went to the... Uh, uh, the feds and the feds said, That's, we don't have enough information. You're not giving us enough. So the Secret Service started putting out pictures of the women that they did have and saying, you know, do you know who this person is? If they're missing, they were able to put it all together. 
But uh, seeing the photo, because he would photograph these these women uh, doing sex acts with him, and uh, they didn't seem happy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> what are you laughing about? What do you think of the old thing was nine out of ten uh, people in a gang rape enjoy it? I know. <laughs> I was I was thinking about the old Jewish joke. The old which old Jewish joke? Why don't why women keep their eyes closed when they're having so they can fantasize their shopping? No, <laughs> they don't. They don't want to see their husbands having a good time. <laughs> that um bump. That's a true story, by the way, uh, Catherine. <laughs> yeah, that would. Have, why do Jewish men die before their wives? Because they want to. <laughs> Oh, oh. I, I collect the. Okay, the, the, the real question then is why did Jewish men get married? That's a good question. Why? Because that's so they can say things, brilliant things like this. They go to, out to a restaurant, they hold the menu, and they look at their wife and say, honey, do I like this? <laughs> <laughs> that's oh, true. I, would, uh, I did that. <laughs> that's why she's in an institution now, and I'm not. <laughs> Is she really in an institution? Yes, honestly, guys, it's very sad that, that she is. She had uh, early onset Alzheimer's and hippocampus degenerative disease, wow. which is really tragic. So she's not hip anymore? No, no, she's not the hippest one on campus. <laughs> Did you remember the name of that book yet? Oh, uh, Sexual Deviance, I believe. Deviance, devia Sexual Deviation, or Divination. That's where you, you have one of those uh, pieces of wood shaped like a Y. And you find water while you're having sex. Sexual deviance theory, assessment, and treatment. By? I, I'll, uh, I'll think of it. If I can't figure it out by the time the show's over, I'll, I'll, I'll text it to well, you. this one is by me. Rachel Bell. This one's by guys. Rachel oh. Bell, that's a friend of mine. Oh, good. Well, then she'll be asked for a free copy of the book. I should. Her mother's an author, I, too, I, right? I, yeah, I think I even uh, reviewed it. Yeah. Rachel Bell has a mother, and uh, yeah, Marilyn. Yeah, and they're both just to the right of Attila the Hun. Uh, Marilyn was my editor for the Court TV stuff when I wrote for the Crime Library. Really? See what a small world it is. Yep. And oh, the time has flown by like a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> what should we run out and buy of yours, Catherine? Uh, the confession of a serial killer. The untold story of. Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. Okay, well, call Rachel on the phone and say, oh, well. give me that book or else. Well, I think she did give it to me because I think I, re I reviewed it. You reviewed it. Well, go back and read your review and find out if you liked it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming. Say hi to her for it. Thank you so much, Catherine. We'll have you back again. All right? Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, Mark, what's next? Hey, Burl. Yeah? It's... Outlaw Radio. Oh, Magic Matt Allen. Magic Matt Allen. And, and the Demons, Demons of Decadence. Decadence. There was a great show on just before our show. It was great because I was on it. Ah, so was Kip. That was very amusing. Are we, done? we still got, uh, what, three seconds left? <laughs> Say goodbye, Burl. Goodbye, goodbye Burl. Burl. Listen to the words he'd say. Stay face forced to portray all the inside.